How will AI shape society? And how will society shape AI? I'm Katrina Ingram, host of the AI for Society Dialogues, a podcast that explores the work of researchers from the University of Alberta, a global leader in artificial intelligence research. Artificial intelligence is having significant impacts on advancing medical research, and perhaps one of the most rewarding areas of medical research is helping children. I am Eleni Strulia, Director of AI for Society, a signature research area at the University of Alberta. Today's guest, Dr. François Bolduc, is a pediatric neurologist and an expert in understanding the genetic basis of memory and cognition. To find out more about how Dr. Bolduc is using AI in the course of his research, here's our host, Katrina Ingram. Dr. Bolduc, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Now, before we get into your work, I would love to know what drew you to the medical profession in general, and then specifically to medical research. So I've always been interested in the brain, how all the things we can do with our brain, we can learn things, we can remember things, we can... uh, uh, perceive things differently. People can do arts, music, and all these kind of skills that the brain can do. So early on, like in high school, I did projects on that. In university, I got exposed to the genetic revolution that was just starting. So they had the decade of the brain and a lot of genetics was coming up in the 90s. So that's when I was in med school and basically got really attracted to that and did residency in neuroscience at McGill, uh, where neuroscience is, is kind of a very important topic and genetics as well. So uh, that's that's kind of what drew me in, in medical. And research in medical to me has always been kind of together in a sense that there's a lot of stuff we don't know. So that's kind of what drives me actually into research back then. And then what kept me in it is really like all the progress we've seen in the last few years where we have disease that we can never treat that we can treat now. So to me, that's really interesting. I love that term, genetic revolution. That, that sounds very, very cool. Maybe you could just um, paint a bit more of a picture for us about this mix of of having a clinical practice, but also doing research in the lab. How does that all intersect uh, for you on any given day? So it it means that at some point of the day, I'll be working with flies, and the other point of the day, I'll be looking at gene results. The other other time, I'll be talking to a nurse working with me about a patient who's having a seizure. It, It is like a very intermixed days, especially nowadays with communication and, and internet and uh, electronic medical records. So things are, have accelerated even since I started like 10 years ago. Uh, the day is a mixture of all of the above. So there's no half days for me of this and half days of that. It's always mixed. It is challenging, I would say, because the patient needs are huge. Like, you know, there is uh, the system is 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 very compressed right now and, and uh, under pressure. And with COVID especially, that's very challenging. The anxiety level is higher for everyone and everyone is more busy, taking more time to do, you know, the work that we would sometimes do and changing the way we work in some ways, doing it better, actually. It's very inspiring, I would say, doing one or the other alone, I think would not be as exciting for me. So it is a balance between excitement and and busyness. Sounds like there's never a dull moment for you. There's not, no. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you mentioned flies. And when I was doing some background research, I noticed on your lab website that one of your favorite links is a site called flybase.org. I'm just wondering if you can explain what do flies have to do with your work? It's a good question. Many uh, health professionals will use mice model or rat models. I, I chose the Droza fila, the fruit fly, because... 
back when I was uh, actually in high school, I think I saw this group of researchers looking at learning and memory and trying to find the genes of learning and memory. And you're talking back in the 80s. This is back when we didn't know about the genome. We didn't know, we knew about genes, but you had to spend 10 years sometime to find a gene at one at a time. And so this group of researchers was using the fruit fly to better understand how you form memory and how you then forget things and how you learn new things and so on. So I, I was really excited about that. And so I kept following that research. And after I finished the residency, I realized that, or well, during the residency, actually, I went to, to that lab to study that because I realized there was a lot of overlap in the genes that were involved in learning and memory. And the genes we were very, very slowly discovering back in the early 2000 uh, that related to intellectual disability, autism, learning disability. So I was quite puzzled by why would these guys working with fruit flies and memory would find the same genes that we're finding in, in our patients. And as usual, uh, those two silos were not that connected, I guess. So I actually really uh, adopted the fly model early on because first, if you look at the brain-related genes, there's 85% of the genes that we have in our brain that are expressed in our brain that are actually also present in the fruit fly. And what's interesting about it is the fruit fly genes are usually simpler. Humans have gone through a lot of evolution, so their genes have complexified. But in flies, the genes are usually simpler in a way that we can study them. So that's kind of what drove me to that. And, and like I said, the main uh, aspect going forward was that, and that's why I decided to embark and do a PhD on that, was that there was actually a very nice set of assays that were well established by those basic scientists that could be used then to identify gene network and also find treatment for those genes. Um so the focus of uh, your research, as I understand it, is understand it is understanding the genetic basis of memory and cognition. And you work primarily with children with developmental disabilities. How did that come to be the focus of your work? So one of the the thing, as I mentioned, that uh, I learned early on was the treatment of, uh, of patients with neurological disorders at, during residency. And one of the things that impressed me is that, for instance, for individuals with epilepsy, which affects about 3% of the population, uh, there was about 15 to 20 medication that we could use. But when we looked at the kids with uh, intellectual disability autism, which about together combined make about 3% of the population again also, those uh, individuals had not really any mechanistic-based treatment. So what I mean by that is that the treatment were mainly affecting the symptoms. So for, for instance, if a child had attention difficulty, then there would be a drug for that. Or if they had behavioral problem, there'll be a very non-specific drug for that. But all we were learning at the gene level of why they have these disorders, because there are some genes, there's more than 500 genes identified, for instance, for individual with autism. There's at least about a thousand for people with developmental delay. That information was kind of lost when it came to management. So that was kind of what drove me in focusing on that aspect. And we were able to discover is that these genes were not involved only in developing the brain or forming the connection, but they were actually constantly activated or constantly required in making new memories, making new information uh, available online for you to think about. And so those children are having major issues with that kind of learning aspect, sometimes either learning some skills, learning some behavior, uh, and or changing their mind on one. One of the things is difficult is the flexibility, the mental flexibility. Now you're doing this, but you're at school now, you have to do something different. And so those kind of aspects we actually are modeling in the fruit fly and showing the network are requiring those genes. So it kind of came together in a sense, if you, uh, if you want, because the, uh, the uh, simpler information we're learning on the flies actually proved to be quite relevant to the, to the human patient. 
Uh, and then the, the idea of treatment development in the fruit fly then going into the mice has actually wor worked to some degree in our lab in a sense that we're currently running a clinical trial on a treatment that we identified based on our work in flies that was then validated in the mice model and then validated in the rat model. And there's some primary data showing the same in human. So what we're moving on now is not so much showing that things are working when we discover them in a model, but finding out why does it work for one individual and not for another individual. So this is called personalized medicine. Mm -hmm. uh, and so in clinical practice, we know that some treatment will work for some people, not for other people, right? We'll, we'll just change a treatment if we see it's not working. But when we come to a clinical trial, we have to preconceive or identify some kind of reason for those things. And, and that's kind of what we're doing currently. So right. we've moved from this very broad disease-based kind of model to a more personalized human approach. Yeah, and that seems to be what genetics is promising us, is, is the ability to move to that personalized approach. But I have to say that for folks like myself who don't have a medical uh, or medical research background at all or, or really understand genetic research, you know, one of the first things that comes to mind for me are services like 23andMe, when I think about genetic research and, and genetic data and DNA. So I'm, I'm hoping that you could just help to unpack this field of genetic research just in a really broad, non-technical way um, and, and discuss what kind of advances are, are being made. You've laid out a number of things already, but I'm hoping you can even simplify that explanation a little bit more for our listeners. Yeah, so back in 2000, the human genome was identified. At that time, it was very few individual and then following that, there was a thousand genome that was sequenced and people kind of realized, oh, there's a lot of variation between people, which we kind of guessed there would be. But there was actually quite a bit of major changes between one individual DNA and the other. And then more recently, the idea of, uh, of uh, genetic background based on individual's uh, origin has become a major, major, major theme in the research of genetics because... May, some variants that may be present in one individual in one genetic background will be a problem and not in another background because they are very commonly found there. And so the idea of 23andMe is really to, to personalize your understanding based on yourself of, of some of those variants, basically. What has been, I think, uh, a, a very strong um, approach with 23andMe is this massive amount of data they've been able to acquire and then understanding some of the traits that are related to your daily living. So they've kind of shown people that you can learn about yourself to some degree with, with, with such kind of kits. Uh, so there's direct to consumer. There are some issues with that because sometimes, and I feel this is a, a, a team that's, that's going to go even uh, more frequently now, is the idea of how do we interpret those results? You know, if you receive a kit that tells you you've got this, uh, how do you analyze that? And that's the part that I think needs to happen now is the all this education around genes and, you know, what they do, what they are, and what they don't do and what they, they are not. You know, there's there's this concept of nature and nurture, which, you know, is, is very old, but that's very important when we think about translating somebody's genes to, to somebody's life. And that's the issue where... If you're alone, and depending on why you're doing the testing, that can be an issue. Even if you're doing it through a setting up, like, so we're part of projects doing that in the academic setup, where we're looking not at specific uh, genes, but at genes throughout uh, the genome, there's about 20, there's over 20,000 genes. So there's a lot of, and there's only 1% of your DNA that codes for those genes. The 90-something percent rest is, is all these parts that we don't really truly understand, I would say, that is involved in regulating how these genes are working, how they're going to get expressed, 
why would you express some uh, disease even or not, if, even if you carry a mutation? That has, I think, engaged the public. I think that's good. And now we, what we need to do is, is leverage the potential and the, the, the cost going down of these techniques to, 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 to learn more about population. You know, and that, that's a very interesting kind of question, I'd say. Something that we're going to see more and more because the cost and the availability of these testing will come will become kind of more standardized. Yeah. Well, and you're mentioning uh, a number of factors here, and and uh, one of the big ones is data and data mm-hmm. collection and, and having large databases. And I think that's a great segue to bring in the artificial intelligence aspect mm-hmm. of, of what we'd like to talk about today. So um, can you talk in general terms about how advances in artificial intelligence are contributing to the field of medicine? And when it comes to how genetic and other healthcare information is being used in patient care, how is AI being applied in this area? So I, I think one thing that AI brought is the ability to manage very complex data. So we always have to reduce the ability we have to reduce the information to some degree previously to the ability of our brains to 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 keep that in our working memory basically so we have to boil it down to a level we can understand we can process and what ai allows you is they have to these external brains i guess that allows you to keep all that information into your input to to make your decision to understand the information so you're not just relying on sex and gender or uh, ethnic origin but you can then rely on a lot of other factors to explain. Uh, if you think of, of a person, persons are very complex. They have all sorts of interaction with other people. They have their life or, you know, their childhood, they're a teenager. So all these things, you cannot take that into account if you take, if you use previously, uh, previous approach. But with AI, what we're trying to do is actually, and what other people are doing is trying to capture all that information and not be biased towards selecting things because that's a major issue if you preconceive the, what you think should happen or what should be important and what's not, you may miss things, you know. And so I think that's one thing. In our field of medicine, there's right now the hospital, you know, several hundred patients, several hundred doctors there, nurses, uh, nursing aid, uh, other professionals, allied health professionals that are working, writing things in a computer in a chart. How much of that data can we use actually to then understand better what's happening with a patient? Previously, it was very challenging to do that. I would say even now it's very challenging. So there's this discontinuity or this gap between or cliff, I guess, between the amount of data we got and the amount of data we can use for AI. And that's one thing that I think is very, very uh, problematic or challenging, I guess, in, in medicine right now is how do we make use of all that data that we can uh, use to learn more about how somebody will do well and how somebody will do bad and how can we predict that so we can intensify treatment for one and not for the other and and apply this more personalized approach to this. So there are success stories of that in the ICU, for instance, where people have been able to predict ahead of time if a patient will deteriorate. Uh, There's also ways to predict in some cancers like markers then very complex kind of combination of factors that would lead to somebody doing well, somebody not doing well, and then change the course of disease and change the course of management that way. So that's that's kind of where I think AI is at. There's a lot of hype around it, and and I think what's going to be challenging is sustaining the interest of clinician once they realize there's a lot of hype and and that there's a lot of work to do. Uh, and I think focusing on that work to do and how they can contribute to that will, will engage everyone. 
So when you say there's a lot of hype, what, what do you mean by that? That it's not the, the be-all, end-all? Or, or how, how, how is the hype um, manifesting? So prior to me being more involved in this, like a couple of years ago, you, you, you read about you know, uh, other examples, like for instance, in medical imaging or in, in self-driving cars. Or that's kind of example that we have, right? Even as, as clinician. And then you, you go to some conference where people are like worried they're going to lose their job. There are not going to be any more jobs in radiology, for instance, because there's algorithm able to, to, to detect lesions and things. And I think that portraying AI as this kind of magical answer to all question, it can be engaging initially, but it can be disengaging. The other issue is that when we promise for some of our project that we can then change things you know, very quickly, it is challenging to deliver that because it you realize quickly that human and, and, and medicine is, is very complex. Uh, there is a lot of expert factors that we, we, are, we are using in our decision-making process that are not necessarily explicit and that have, cannot be or have not been impl implied into AI or involved into AI at this point. So that's what I mean. It, it is built too much on that hype. I think that we need to kind of show people progress and that's kind of what this is what's happening right now. It's, you know, we're moving into that phase where everyone's excited and now we're showing them what it can actually do. And so there are some tools that have been developed to help facilitate, for instance, communication between patient and physician um, in, in some cases where there is, you know, simple problems, simple questions that can be answered that way. I think patients appreciate the access to, to, to these conversational agents, for instance, instead of waiting for speaking to somebody. But there are some other situations where things are complex and nuanced and, and cannot really be easily uh, dealt with. So that, that's kind of where I feel we're at at this point. Yeah. Well, and let's talk about a, a concrete example. Um, so earlier you mentioned to me that you're working with an interdisciplinary team uh, across universities, but also across departments. So with working with people in the computing sciences department on a, a new project, uh, would you like to explain that a bit more? Yeah, so this is a... a one of the most exciting time actually in my life and in research, something that kind of goes back to my interest in the, how, how intelligence develops, how do we learn? But now we're trying to, to do it with, with a computer basically. And so uh, it comes from the idea that in our clinical practice, I've realized that a lot of individuals diagnosed with autism or with intellectual disability or with learning disability or ADHD had nowhere to go really except Google questions they had and then when we looked into what they found, or what they told us what they found, it was not always helpful. There was some very important, good information, but there was also information they didn't know if they could trust. There was information that was just outdated. There was information that was, again, hype, you know, around some, some teams with some groups really pushing agendas. And there was a lot of also financially biased uh, information. So we kind of decided we it would be nice to put together a way or a list of resources for individuals and families. One of the major issues is when the families leave the pediatric age and go into the adulthood, they don't have always a team. The average number of doctors or health professionals involved in a child care with intellectual disability autism is around 20 to 30 people. Wow. So that's a lot of people. And then when they turn 18, all of a sudden, it's one. It's their family doctor. And so there's this big gap, you know, uh, that exists, I would say that we saw and families really suffering through those transition. There's need for also school, you know, ends when you become an adult. So kids that are in school all day would be at home all day and not necessarily integrated into programs. And, and this becomes not very motivating for the child and becomes very, or the young adult becomes difficult for the parents as well. And we realized there was some 
redundancy that in a sense that every week we would have these questions and we felt that maybe we could build something that would be able to let the individual interact you know with with it a chatbot you know in a, in this case that could kind of provide these question answer and provide that information to them and then again integrate within our workflow so that our nurse and our uh, social worker could then target the more complex situations uh, the, the situation where there's factors that are different than the usual, for instance. So that's kind of how this project came about. It's really from a need that we see in the clinic. We, we have formed a parents' advisory board, uh, which is parents from across Canada with children with various conditions that lead to those diagnoses. And, and the, the interest has been huge. Like, this is a major, major issue for families that they, they really want to find a, an answer to. How do you get trusted information? How do you get information you can apply to yourself also. It's nice you find a website from the UK or from Australia, but that may not be your reality if you live in Red Deer or if you live in Fort McMurray. Right. Where do you go? Where, where, who do you call? Uh, we assume that everyone knows and everyone has a network, but the issue is that there's a lot of people out there that do not have that point person that they can go to to get that information, that entry point, you know, like getting to know the field, getting to know the proper variety of information. So yeah, that's the idea. You, you paint a really, um, a really interesting picture. And for those of us who aren't part of this world and don't really understand this, even going from a team of 20 to 30 healthcare professionals to having one healthcare professional that you're now relying on, not really understanding where to find credible information. I think we all understand uh, the concerns around misinformation mm -hmm. that we find on, on the web. Um, so being able to find credible information and, and be supported um, in that way. Can you talk a bit more about what it was like working with the, the parents and the other stakeholders in developing this resource? Because it sounds to me like you did some consultation with mm -hmm. that community so that you could serve them well. Yeah, so this is actually a work in progress. We, we are starting this, we have started this project about a year ago uh, more um, intensely, but it is an ongoing collaboration with families. We actually have a resource team, which is led by one parent, actually, who's a research assistant to in our lab now. Uh, and so she's working full-time with us, basically uh, identifying those resources. She's built a network, a Canadian network of families able to, uh, I say families because most of the participants have a family member with uh, one of those diagnoses of neurodevelopmental disability. And they basically, engage and able to provide us with what they found was useful. Um, and then we're building on that a database basically of resources. We also just started working with other groups that are doing that. The Canadian government has put uh, funding behind that and sponsored a group uh, based uh, out of British Columbia actually to do that. So we just started talking to them and, and sharing information and collaborating together so we could actually build that. Uh, our main focus is not so much on building that database, but how do we sustain that going forward? And that's why I think AI comes in. So for instance, v validating information. Old ways is to have a group of experts look through those. But if you go from a, a site or a local like provincial to a national or even then a national level, there's just too many sites to look at, right? So we're, that's the work we're doing with Osmar Zane here. They've developed a tool called MedFact. And MedFact is using AI-based uh, principle to assess the quality, uh, the readability of of websites, basically. And so what we're doing with them is we're not just trying to find fake news, but also uh, news where or websites where there's incomplete information or where information may have been exaggerated, for instance. So there is a lot of that in, in medicine where some of these sites are completely 
you know, built on a fake theory. Uh, but there is also a lot of them that are built on some kind of amount of data that have maybe then been dismissed or partially changed over time. But that part doesn't get online. And families uh, get just that incomplete information, to say the least. And sometimes false information, but, you know, incomplete seems to be a big, big one. So that AI, I think, coming in then makes the project more sustainable long term. Yeah. And I want to talk about the chatbot a bit more. But before I get there, just one question about working together um, as a team mm. in collaboration with different disciplines. So AI for Society um, Signature Research Area is all about building collaborations across different disciplines. And in the case of your project, not only did you do that, but you also brought in some people that were not technical but have deep domain expertise. You mentioned this one researcher who's also a parent. Can you talk about the, the learning curve of just getting everybody working well together in order to build the resource in a way that was beneficial? Yeah, I would say we really had the human factor matching between uh, myself, uh, Dr. Zane, Dr. Greiner, Carrie Demenzep as well from education. We really got connected and really enjoyed talking to each other. And, and we had a chance to have a seed grant to get that discussion going. So we had two years kind of thinking about those ideas, meeting weekly and talking about what we could do, how we should approach that. And so the, there was this time allowed for us to, to kind of let ideas develop uh, slowly. And, and more recently, what we've been doing basically is, is able to share information, but also share knowledge between our, our different labs, basically. So we have students that are actually working part-time in one lab, part-time in the other lab, and then being exposed to these other type of people around. So to me, that's been a very important piece of this collaboration. It's not just PI saying, we'll sort out a problem or go after a question together, but really it's been embraced by all their teams and their students and, and really getting computer science people to meet with nurses and with patients, going to a conference with parents and, and doctors and health professionals. So that's been a major kind of fun thing to do. It's been also challenging at some point because we're also working with people from education department, from psychology, and there's a language barrier. You know, uh, I think that as long as you uh, accept that and then are ready to go beyond that, I think at the end of the day, prior to us going into all these specialized fields where we were all, you know, high school students or college students, and we're all excited about something and this is really what we've gotten back to is this excitement piece. And then that, I think, allows people to respect each other and respect their differences, respect the fact they don't understand all the technical piece, but are able to translate that like if they were talking to their family members or something like that. And we're lucky because we've had that in the team. So these silos that I was talking about between health professional, computational science, education, uh, psychology, um, just to name a few, uh, and families, uh, you know, sometimes, those have been kind of, we've built a lot of bridges between these things. And I think part of it is their students are themselves very excited and interested in that, that kind of translation of information. And so it, it is a language, I think, but from going from medicine to science myself about 10 years ago, I realized that once you, you can learn the language, you can, if you put yourself to it and if you engage into the project. So that, Luckily, that's what happened here. And those, the synergy, is, I think, has been key to this project so far. That uh, What you've just described echoes uh, some of my own experiences in being part of an interdisciplinary team where you kind of need to overcome the language barriers to kind of get down to the real work. But when you do, um, it can be quite magical just mm -hmm. to see everybody collaborating in that way. 
Um, and I'm glad you mentioned students as well, because I was curious, um, because you are a professor uh, as well, and, and you teach and mentor graduate students, I was really glad to hear how you've integrated your students mm-hmm. into this project and are giving them a, a pretty unique experience to see things in, from a different yeah. perspective. Yeah, I think so, because like I said, many computer science students have never seen uh, you know, aside from being patient themselves, have never seen the hospital, have these ideas about hospitals they may have seen on TV or from their family experience. But talking and working with professional in a non-medical kind of situation makes things very different. What I mean by that is that if you are a patient yourself, you're in a different position. But if you're a scientist talking to another scientist, or if you're a scientist talking to a parent, I, I think they all have been very thrilled about that because they see also the impact of their work. One of the issues sometimes in research is that you don't see the impact for years sometimes of your work, right? If you uh, if you trim your trees outside, you see it right away. If you paint your walls, you see it right away. And that kind of energy, I think that kind of reward is is, is positive for everyone. So for students, I think what they've seen is that parents are very uh, engaged in saying like, oh, this would be very helpful to me. This would help me like sleep better at night. This would help my kid function better in school. I think that makes it more real for them. And and then the, the code is important, but they kind of have this idea of what they are doing is major outcome kind of for those families. And put faces on these on these uh, users, as we would call them, like in technical jargon, right? But now that's they have a face, they have a person in mind. So I think having this collaborative kind of aspect would never have been achieved if we did not have this group of people working together. Yeah, and, and speaking of that impact, I, I understand that um, last year you had a prototype version of this chatbot. If we were to want to use this chatbot prototype, what would that look like? Um, what would be involved in in using that? Yeah, so we had a master student uh, from uh, Dr. Greiner and Dr. Zane's lab who basically took this project uh, as his thesis project. And I have to say, they did a fantastic job at identifying all the issues that we would have in doing this prototype. And then was able to come up with a prototype uh, that would be able to suggest resources based on some specific areas or questions that you may have. What One thing we realize is that families are very critical of these kind of things because we're all very busy. I think that we don't want something that's not going to be very useful. And so we, that's why we went back to drawing board, built on that prototype. I think that prototype, as the name implies, was very useful in kind of identifying the challenges, the issues. And, and we've just la- yesterday actually saw the, the second version of that prototype, basically, which is much newer and much improved in its ability with also the, all these resources. So this idea of personalization, you talked about 23andMe, people want to know about things that relate to them, not to the population necessarily, or not to all people in Edmonton. They would like to know about what could help their kids. So that's really what we did for this, this one. That's the criticism slash feedback we got from families is that tell us something that's very useful to us. Otherwise, that's not going to be very useful, you know, tool for us to put time in. So we learned a lot, actually. And I think talking to people that do these kind of tools, you need to do a lot of prototypes and a lot of going back and forth and and really that kind of co-creation mode. You know, we're not seeing parents as like the audience that we call. They are really part of the co-creation, giving us feedback at every single step of the way, how do we engage them? They, we had focus group actually this year, led by a student this summer, and then again this fall, to, to find how would we keep people engaged with the tool? How we use tools for instance in gamification to make the chatbot more engaging for people to go back and then act as a coach and not so much as a search engine. So we want this kind of 
long-term relation with the tool. And so families are really like very engaged in that. Yeah. And I think that's so important, that stakeholder engagement piece and also making it iterative and and improving it. Mm -hmm. It's exciting that you've got a second prototype Mm -hmm. uh, ready. And, and, And so how, how are you making it personal? to to someone specific. So we we actually consulted a lot this year with psychologists, with behavioral therapists, with social worker, with groups here in Edmonton and Calgary that are actually doing that real life coaching with families that are having challenging times either with their child or with themselves. So how do we take care of the parents so they are feeling it and they're in a better place themselves so they can help their kids better? Everything is always focused on the child, but nobody really asks about the parents. Meanwhile, the parents are the one doing all the, a lot of the work, right? Anyway, we, we've consulted a lot with people and translated their experience, translated their expertise into questions and ways the chatbot should go forward in a conversation with the user, with the, with the parents in this case. That's challenging because our chatbot has become a multidimensional person, I would say. It's not a doctor. It's not a nurse. It's not a social worker. It's not a teacher. It's not a parent. It's kind of all of the above mixed together. And so that unique persona makes it very special because it's not biased toward like medical intervention. It's not biased just on educational intervention. And what we realized is that there was a lot of crosstalk needed between all these people, but it's hard to carry that, especially now with COVID, I would say. But even prior to that, we're in different buildings, we have different languages again, we have different backgrounds and, and interaction with people. And so I think we are kind of set in our ways to some degree many times. And this kind of chatbot aims at, at taking all these angles and, and putting it in one perspective so a parent does not get the impression he's talking to a nurse or a doctor or a teacher, but kind of get all these options uh, out there. So that's been very challenging because that conversation does not always flow very easily because, again, the approach can be very different from different people. Um, so that's kind of what we're trying to do to personalize it, to bring it to a, a very complex, I guess, way of understanding the individual. And then we postulate that if we understand better all these aspects, then we'll be able to provide resources or give information or guide people better. I love how you've described it as kind of this multidimensional person that's mm-hmm. filling a number of, of key and important roles that are, are perhaps gaps in, in the way the system is set up now. So really important question. Have you actually come up with a cool name for this chatbot? Well, we call it Kemi. Uh, <laughs> so we've, we, we've, we've worked so much on the, on the conversation and the flow this year that we, we set out to do a logo and to come up with the name. So for now, we're still calling it Kemi. We don't have a logo yet. So that, that's the project for this year. Yeah, Maybe Christmas gift for us. <laughs> Perfect. Well, beyond the chatbot, um, in what other ways is AI intersecting with your work? So, as I mentioned earlier, our study started with the genetics and understanding how the genes influence people's behavior or people's outcome, basically. And and one of the reasons why we used the fruit fly was to understand these gene interaction, because there's a lot of tools already available in flies. It's been used since 1900 to map out genes and understand gene interaction. So people have a lot of experience with that, lots of tools. So understanding this gene interaction and flies kind of led us to the idea that gene interact together differently in different setup. So if if you're looking at forming a memory, you'll have this group of genes coming together to do that. If you're looking at regulating how the fly flies, there'll be another set of genes regulated, involved in that. And so what you observe if, if you look at a patient is that some patient will have more of this, some patient will have more of that problem. That's one other thing that we you know, really focus on the lab, in the lab is not just finding 
reason for problems, but reason for strength. A child may have an attention deficit, but may have a lot of energy to do some sport, and we want to balance these kind of things. In medical, we always focus more on the problems, but I think in health and in education, we need to also think about these kind of positive strengths so that the self-esteem of the individual, the, the parents also, the parents will tell you very quickly about all the positive things if you ask, but that's not been the focus many times of, of these conversational agents. Also, it's been solving a problem, ordering a pizza or, you know, fixing a problem. So we're really taking the approach of understanding those things, but also kind of finding the strength of those children so that we can actually also build on that and, and substitute some issues with, with some strength, basically. So at the genetic level, we see the same. Some gene interaction will lead to memory problem, but will improve your sleep. And so we observed that in the lab and other groups have observed that. That's still something that's emerging in terms of understanding for sure. But in the human, that's what we're trying to do with genetics as well. There's large projects, as I mentioned before, the UK Biobank, uh, all of us. There's groups of researchers that have put together like very big cohorts of patients with sequence and also with some description of their way of living, their, their ability to sleep. 23andMe is one of those where they've combined like genetic data and what we call phenotypic data. So how people behave, what the symptoms they may have, all the skills they have and things like that. So now what we're trying to do with AI is understand better how those genes, or more importantly, those gene networks will link to how you you have some syndromes, some, some disorders or uh, have some skills. Because we're also interested in understanding how some people have better memories than others or how some people have better attention or you know, those kind of things. So we could use that also to understand better how to approach uh, prevention, health, disease, and things like that. So it is a very complex thing because you've got on one side a lot of genes. And as I mentioned, a lot of part of your DNA that does not code for genes, but is involved in that regulating those genes. And then on the other side, you've got people that have, you know, a lifespan of experience, a lifespan of, of, uh, of, of uh, disorders or disease in some cases, and, and have all these people around them, like th that, that human network that's around them as well. So we're trying to kind of make sense of that to some degree by studying some simpler condition, like again, the learning disability or the neurodevelopmental disabilities, focusing really on that so we could move the needle a little bit forward in terms of identifying treatment or intervention. What's important to me is not focus only on finding a drug or finding, but it's also finding what type of intervention works best for this type of combination of factors. For instance, for a child with autism, some type of intervention that you would do for another child will not work because it will trigger for them a lot of anxiety or, you know, will be a, a major negative for them. So there's a need for tailoring better our intervention, be it pharmacological or non-pharmacological. I think that's, that's really important to onboard people that are doing non-pharmacological. I think the idea of drug development based on these kind of AI and genetic is, is, is moved, is, is there. But the, now I think the next level will be how do we combine these interventions together, the, the, the one that involves treatment with drugs and the one that involves treatment with other type, speech therapy, physiotherapy, occupational therapy, for instance. How do we combine them to get the maximum both of them? How do we augment them? So mm -hmm. this is kind of really what we're trying to do now with AI. Um, my last question, very open-ended. Um, is there anything else that you would like to share when it comes to medicine and AI intersecting in, in the big picture way or even specific to your research? Any final thoughts that you have? Yeah, that's a good question. There's a lot of things, but I think that the, seeing the engagement, seeing that parents, patients are actually 
are really interested in knowing what's going on, that clinicians are also becoming more and more aware and more interested in participating, providing their expertise. Every year a new doctor starts, he, to some degree, uh, he or she has to learn a lot of things. What if we could pass on that knowledge so that you make that learning curve faster and you get people faster, uh, you know, and how do you transfer information from generation to generation better? I think this is kind of going to be something really important from using AI in medicine. And the other piece is, how do we go from a better understanding of an individual to better intervention and better policies so that policies kind of match these needs for personalization? I think that and the personalization of, of treatment will be the major thing for neuroscience uh, for, for our field. Well, Dr. Balduck, I just want to say thank you so much for being here today and for sharing your story and your research with our audience. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. AI for Society Dialogues is a co-production between AI for Society, a signature research area at the University of Alberta, and the Cool Institute for Advanced Studies. Find out more about AI for Society at AIforsociety.ca and the Cool Institute at kiosk.ualberta.ca. This podcast was produced at the University of Alberta, located on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional homelands of First Nations and Métis peoples. Our technical producer is Corey Stroder, and our theme music is Seeing the Future by Dexter Britton. Special thanks to Dr. Scott Smallwood and the Sound Studies Institute for providing recording space. Stay connected to AI for Society. Sign up for our newsletter at AIforsociety.ca. You can find out more about me, Katrina Ingram, at ethicallyalignedai.com. <laughs>